When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dive in on God and watch the tape from Cleveland.com. Numbers and film breaking down the two and one Cleveland Browns heading into this week's game at Minnesota. Who at Minnesota? We'll see how many how many times on this podcast we can tell that Ellis Williams is from Minnesota. From the way he says certain words, maybe he'll give us extra Minnesota words this week. We're gonna do offense and defense. Well, actually, we're gonna do offense and offense because it's two interesting parts of the Browns offense right now. Ellis is going to start out with OBJ, and then Scott's going to dig in on the offensive line. But Ellis, we'll start with you. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape. Yeah, first I want to have an overall surface view on Odell Beckham's return. Uh, of course, it was all eyes on Odell, and it, on the surface, you know, he, he played a nice game. I, I thought he played more than expected. Uh, I think we all thought he'd be maybe on a, more of a limited count, and it, it turns out he was out there for 52 snaps, 34 of which he was running routes. Um, and, and that means that he was really a, a focal point of, of the passing offense. Uh, Pro Football Focus graded him at a 76.2 overall, best of all the wide receivers. Though Kareem Hunt did register a 90 overall, and for good reason, Kareem really dominated that game both on the ground and through the air. Uh, ben, Beckham finished with five catches for 77 yards on nine targets. Of those 34 routes run, he lined up outside 30 times and in the slot four times, which mirrors really how the Browns were using him last year. If we go back to week four, that memorable Dallas game at Jerry world, his best game as a Brown is three touchdown performance. Beckham played 58 snaps that game. He ran 34 passing routes. He lined up in the slot seven times and outside 27 times. Uh, He even fielded a reverse in that game in Dallas, uh, which was much more explosive than the one he had versus Chicago. But still, he he looks dangerous as an outside runner, and he showed that on Sunday. Uh, OBJ's performance came with a few highlight moments, as you'd expect from a healthy Beckham. On the Browns' first drive, they were backed up on a third and long. Beckham opened up in the slot for a smooth 13-yard pickup. His long catch came uh, on a 26-yard impressive back shoulder ball, which we're going to get into uh, both of these plays more later Uh, and his fourth quarter sideline ball that uh, would have brought Cleveland to the five yard line uh, was ruled out of bounds, but that was the, that spectacular Beckham that you you come to expect. And uh, I just wanted to share something Stefanski said uh, about Beckham's performance. He called it a productive 52 snaps uh, that he was in constant communication with Chad O'Shea, the wide receiver coach and Alex Van Pelt, the coordinator to make sure that he felt good any first time back, it's always good to monitor working through that and getting your win and that type of thing. But the, the overall, the coaching fa- staff thought he did a nice job. Thus, it seems Beckham is back. But we're going to get to the tape and, and some more deeper stats to put some context in that. But before we do that, both you guys, I'm just curious what you thought uh, overall in general of OBJ's return. I thought it was fitting that one of his first catches was on a slant. Uh, it just seemed like, hey, let's make this nice and easy for him. This is what he can do in his sleep. And we just throw a slant for him, and uh, and he got it. And uh, I mean, slants generally went down when Stefanski showed up for him and and uh, and Landry. But uh, I just I get the sense that maybe we're going to see more of those this year. Um, it didn't really pay off as well when he was with, when he first got to the Browns as far as running slants and actually being productive on them. Certainly not to the rate they were when he was with the Giants, but. I think that route, I think we're going to see more of it. And like I said, I think it was fitting for right off the bat. What, what was the snap count again, Ellis? 54, I believe. 52. 52 yep. do we, out of how many do we I know? believe – can I have it right Cause, here? Because I will say the thing that I noticed was – I mean, he just, he just was a full-time player. That he even – I mean, he was even – whatever the percent of snaps was was higher because then at the end of the game when they were way ahead, then they pulled him out. But yep. he was he was out there every snap. 
that mattered in the first three quarters. And then if he like ran a long route and something happened, then they'd run him off for one play or whatever. But there was, when the game was in the balance, there was nothing to differentiate him than anybody else who was an important player playing basically all the time. And so I'm trying to figure out, again, we talked about it a lot on the, the preview show for that, that Dan had set an over under and we had a long discussion, but like, ah, oh, 25 or 30. And like, that was totally wrong. So were we wrong to assume it? Or do we think that the fact that the run game took a while to get going and it was a low scoring game and the Browns weren't putting up points. It was like, we can't work this guy in. He's got, or that he was just telling them, as you said, Ellis, they were monitoring, monitoring, monitoring. And if he was saying, I'm cool, I'm cool, I'm cool. Do, do you think it actually was the plan? He's just going to play. Or do you think he got forced into playing because they had to try to get the offense going? Yeah, I, I think the plan was for him to play. So again, those 52 snaps of 81 total, that's 64%, but only Donovan Peoples-Jones had more wide receiver snaps uh, with only one more 53. You look at Higgins with 40 snaps, the tight ends played a bunch, Njoku with 50 snaps, Hooper 49, and, and then you have Anthony Schwartz with a healthy 28, which is what I'm going to get into. I think the plan was to let him play, and, and we're going to see that go, continue going forward. I think in, when it mattered, I think he was more like 80% of the time he was right. playing. Yeah. And then he just kind of took a rest at the end with a 20 point lead. Um, all right. So nine targets, nine targets. Is that right? Nine targets. Yep. yep. Did that, did that feel like the right number of targets to you, Ellis? It, it definitely felt like the right number of targets. It, it's important to keep in context that Beckham and Mayfield have struggled together with their completion percentage and catch rate together over their first two seasons. Well documented, they had the second worst completion percentage of 54.6% of any quarterback and receiver duo on Sunday, Beckham caught 55% of his targets, you know, slightly better, but, but not much. So I want to spend this next portion talking about those nine targets. We're going to separate them by quarter. We're going to learn a lot uh, in the first half as that was really when the game was in the balance compared to uh, some of the second half stuff. Uh, but let's just get right into it. In the first quarter, you saw early and healthy action, back-to-back uh, -back plays. Beckham, first of all, targeted on an inside slant from the number two spot over a slot corner. He worked inside, but doesn't separate due to an inside shade, and Baker probably should have went elsewhere. Now, that you could call that force feeding, but really it's, it's a read that is a bang-bang play regardless, and the defense made a, a heads-up play. But on the very next snap, they get right back to OBJ. He has a 13-yard reception where he worked inside versus Bears linebacker, got behind him, and shuffled out to widen his window for Mayfield, and it was a great route. And that was, you know, four of Beckham's five catches resulted in first downs, and this was one of the more important ones, just being that getting that first one out of the way and, again, moving the chains on a, what was a third and 12, third and 13. Um then on the, their next drive, Beckham's targeted on a vertical route down the sideline, and he draws defensive holding. This is really something I thought, and I'm curious what you two think, that the Browns offense has been missing, a receiver that can draw penalties. So when that is dramatic enough sometimes in his flair, but also quick in his twitch where he, you do see that cloth get grabbed when you tr try to hold on to Beckham. And that was something, as I rewatched the tape, that I noticed like, oh, yeah, this is what having a receiver that separates – consistently 14, 16, 20 yards downfield looks like because defensive backs are grabbing cloth. Did you guys notice that? Yeah. I, they sending, especially sending somebody deep to do that. Like you said, it's, yeah. it's who else on this team is going to get that kind of attention and, and, uh, and draw those panels. I, I actually, I went through and I, I found some of his actual route run numbers. Like he ran five go or, or fly routes Mm -hmm. It sounds about right. He ran a few like double move deep routes. So he was running long and he was a big reason why Baker's average depth of target jumped so much and don't always have to complete those passes. You just got to run those routes. And sometimes they, you know, it gets the yardage for you. So I did, I was in the stands for this game with my daughter. And so that was one of the times when the Browns were moving our direction and you would just, I was just watching Odell to see where he lined up and to see how the defense adjusted to him. And like, is there a safety shading his way or not? And as the Stefanski constant motion and changing things before the snap, how a defense is adjusting. And I was trying to watch for whenever there are moments for like, Oh, this is one-on-one. -on -one. This is one-on-one. -on -one. They are not going to have any help on him here. And I think that felt like one of those, there was kind of a safety there, but I think he had some other responsibilities. 
and it felt like to me that the moments when it was clearly Odell's outside and it's one-on-one, I thought Baker did take those opportunities enough, right? And that there, to what you're saying, Scott, and I'm sure the point you're making, Alice, like there is value in that. You can see, you can almost, it's like a flower when they do the, you know, when they do the nature documentaries and they do the fast forward and it makes like the flower comes open like in one second. And it's like, you can see the offense opening up, like literally that, Hey, look, if you do this, then guess what? Baker's going to try it to that guy. And that it, it's just so much value in that, that hold there. There was so much value in that. And it, it was exactly what you said that like it, when he's not there, you don't see it as much. And it was just, it was sort of nice to see just the option and the defense having to think about it. Exactly. And that's, that's what this offense has been missing. And Beckham, I thought impressed also with his ability to run underneath his second catch came with five minutes to play in the first quarter. It was a seven yarder. Uh, again, lined up in the slot is the number two in a twins left formation. Donovan Peoples Jones was split out wide. As I go through this, it's going to be important to keep in mind that the pairings that the Browns work through uh, getting Odell back into this offense. Uh, Beckham again, works inside of a bear slot corner and wins on the left shoulder. And that's where Baker Mayfield placed it, allowing uh, Beckham to slide under the hit. And I thought this was probably the second best chemistry throw that the two had, you know, the catch percentage isn't exactly where you want it to be, but for Baker to protect Odell from a hit while Beckham expecting it inside. Cause if you're thinking it's going outside or leading you, you're not going to be ready to open up like that. And he slowed his run, understood where the pressure was coming from the potential hit and, and, and caught it inside. Now that's again, only a seven yard catch, but I, I think we're putting to slowly, but surely putting to bed these chemistry issues. Uh, and then the first quarter ends with his uh, end around reverse for 10 yards. So Doug, much to your point about how it felt like Odell was a part of the plan early. He, d- he does end the first quarter with four targets, plus the one rush. So we'll say five attempted touches and two catches for 20 yards, plus the 10 yard rush. He was a, a focal point of this offense to get him acclimated quickly and early. And so you're what you saw, I think really checks out. Yeah, no, it's just, and you can tell, I mean, it's, it's, it's obvious. It just is obvious to the naked eye that it's a different offense when he's on the field. And then, and then when Baker is willing to take it right or try yeah. it and it just, it changes everything. So let's get into the second quarter because this is when I started to notice some things that we're going to have to keep an eye on. I'm not sure if they're one-offs or going to be trends. Uh, Beckham got his his next target in the second quarter on a third and 15. It it was a deep down the right sideline throw. There was nothing there. In a way, it looked like a a throwaway. And after that, it it was a quiet second quarter for Beckham. And I think there are some reasons for that. I noticed Anthony Schwartz, Donovan Peoples-Jones, and Rashard Higgins take all the snaps on the Browns' fourth drive, which lasted eight plays and ended in a punt. But the following drive comes back, which ended in Austin Hooper's 19-yard score. It was heavy Donovan Peoples-Jones, Rashard Higgins in the slot, and OBJ working out wide. Uh, OBJ was actually doubled with a high safety and corner on the right side on Hooper's touchdown, allowing Austin that open seam. And I think this is an example of the way Cleveland may platoon their receivers, even when Jarvis returns. It's going to be less Rashard Higgins, of course, when Landry's back. But the, the sprinkling of Anthony Schwartz in there at times to just keep Odell as fresh as possible. I, I think the days of 85, 90% snap counts for OBJ are done, not because he can't handle it, not because he's nearing 30 or anything like that. This team just has the weapons to do that. And much as like they hold Nick Chubb until the fourth quarter or, you know, give him anywhere between 22 and 13 carries, they're going to be able to play with Odell's availability in that way. And it was really noticeable on their drive switching just almost in like on hockey lines. They've got the depth to do that receiver, not to mention Dimitri Felton who was getting sprinkled in as well. I'm starting to think that Nick Chubb is the only person on this offense who's going to get consistent production week to week. Every other week, it's going to be, you're not really sure. One week it's Schwartz or it's Felton or it's Kareem Hunt making those big plays. It's just, but Chubb's always there, but everybody else is kind of 
you know, it just kind of depends how the game goes. Can I ask, I don't want to, I don't want to jump anything here, but I, Scott, did you not write, did you write this week about how they did figure out the slot stuff without Jarvis? Yes. I went through and, and I went through all the snap counts for everybody in the slot. Can we insert that really quickly? Just cause we had yeah. spent yeah. some time on that. I, I, you mentioned some of the Odell snaps, but Scott, how did that end up breaking down in the slot? Well, first off, Odell had five snaps, which was kind of like in the middle of the pack, but he did have the most targets and catches out of the slot. Uh, he had three, 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 four targets, three were catchable. He caught all three, 36 yards, two touchdowns, but the rest, it was three snaps for Hunt and Bryant and Bryant in the slot is nothing new. He's always in there. Demetric Felton got four snaps. Uh, he had one catch. Then Beckham with a five. Nine snaps for Austin Hooper and DPJ. Hooper was the only one of those two to get a target, and he caught the one he got, and that was the 13-yard touchdown. And then Higgins led everybody. 22 snaps, but he had one catch. Mm. Uh, and only one target, one catch, 17 yards. So all that chemistry talk all week about Higgins and Baker didn't really materialize. So they used a lot of guys, and in truth, that's the norm. Even when Landry is there, Landry's spot in the slot has really diminished over the past couple of years. He got 49% of his snaps there last year. The first time he's been under 50 um, with the, with the dolphins, he was always over 60. So his role has kind of changed even in week one, 14 slot, 15 out wide or 15 slot, 14 out wide. So it's just going to be a, a group of people, but Higgins looks to be the guy who's going to get the most snaps not necessarily the most targets. Did that fit what you kind of thought might happen, Ellis? Yeah, it, it seems like this is a team that is not going with as much 11 with specifically um, Jarvis Landry focus in that spot. And of course, with him not available, then you're going to sprinkle it between Felton, OBJ, Harrison Bryant, like Scott said, is nothing new. And really the key in that is Kevin Stefanski knows how to scheme Odell open when he is put in the slot. You know, that's for such a limited rep count, but high usage rate in the slot. You, you can tell that this combination or trifecta of Beckham, Baker, and Stefanski are just getting going. And I, again, not that Beckham's role snap count numbers in the slot will increase, but I continue to be expect them to be high usage like that. Okay. All right. Let's get back to that game flow and targets. Yep. Yep. So now you see Beckham after halftime, I think get his feedback under him a little bit. I know he said after the game, it never happened, but you know, who doesn't have a flair for the dramatics when you're playing wide receiver, you, you saw uh, um, that explosiveness uh, come back. He had the down the right sideline at the 12 minute mark, a third and seven, a huge play. Uh, the 26 yard back shoulder gain. It was him and Baker's best connection of the game. I thought shows their timing shows their chemistry that I didn't notice in the past. And it led to a, a Cleveland field goal. And this is the type of back shoulder that you saw Baker and Donovan people's Jones connect for on a few times. It, it's the one Devonta Adams and Aaron Rodgers can seamlessly do in their sleep. And to me, it, it's clear that Baker has spent a lot of time throwing that ball the only difference is Odell has now been around for those reps because it's something that I think these two are going to rely on for the rest of the year. Was that the toe tap little, like little ballet yep. feet yeah. on the sideline. Okay. Yep. yep. Yeah. Cause I thought there was one earlier in the game where they tried one like that. And they kind of were just off a little bit. It kind of sailed, I think whatever. And it's like, you could feel them. It felt like working out that to me, that was the play where I was like, okay, it's be- like, okay. Yeah. All right, then that's a thing. And that looks replicable and that looks important. And that looks something like something a defense needs to plan for. And like you just said with Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams, they don't have to get to that point, but man, that feels like something that that can be dangerous and effective and that can lift. That's what we're talking about, right? How do you level up this offense that levels up this offense from the second half of last year? Yeah. And I got to think that the, Beckham gets fouled on a, on a route like that, gets pulled because the defense knows he's going to catch that ball. Anthony Schwartz maybe doesn't get that kind of respect. Maybe, you know, you kind of see what happens. I mean, you saw that against the Chiefs. He got he got free uh, a few times, and he did bobble that one. 
But I think it's just there's probably a respect factor there too. It's like we're not even going to let him get by us because you know that he doesn't even need a lot of room to, to haul in something like that. Yeah, and, and Doug, you're right about that play feeling like, all right, Beckham is back. On the next series, though, we would have put any doubt of Beckham and Baker to complete rest had they connected on a third and five play. What was, first of all, before we get to it, it was nice seeing Beckham right out there immediately after the play, or excuse me, on the following drive, uh, unlike that uh, fourth drive in the uh, second quarter, not, you know, not needing the rest again, uh, leaning in towards the high snap rate, getting in the flow of the game. And when I saw him out there, even after that 26 yard catch, I'm like, okay, he is, he's, this is Beckham. He, he's not going to take snaps off. He's not going to take drives off. And they were, they were quite close to connecting on, on a third and five deep clear out. What they had were trips to the right and the offensive line didn't hold up. The, Baker ended up getting sacked again on this third and five. He needed really probably a half a second more. And you had DPJ and Higgins clearing out uh, basically the entire right side of the field, just on deep crosses and Odell was, I believe, the number two running what would have been a about a 15-yard in post. And he it was open. He would have had yards after the catch available because two deep safeties are going with the two receivers. And, and it was there. And it would have been um, by far his biggest play of the game. And again, something you're, you don't notice on the broadcast – but a sign that Kevin Stefanski, I think, is a lot further along in understanding how to use Odell Beckham Jr. in where Baker Mayfield is going to like to find him, aside from just these sideline throws. Finding those 15, 20-yard intermediate routes is what comes next. That's what I was looking for mostly on this rewatch, and y'all, they were that close. It, it was that close on a deep clear out and just a, a nice designed by Stefanski, but we're going to get to the offensive line, which uh, wasn't, didn't hold up all that uh, great against the bears. I'll keep going. Bears take six minutes off the clock and and land three points on a nine play drive. Beckham becomes a key part of the Browns final touchdown drive. Again, once again, noticing his pace of play, his involvement and just the flow of this offense, it became quite natural Uh, starting at the, a minute mark left in the third quarter. He starts the Browns final touchdown drive with a 16 yard deep slant. And this one really just came easy to him Uh, outside coverage off. And it's that deep about around 12 yards. I'm going to break in where you, it's really a three-way go. Am I going to stop? Am I going to keep going deep or do I have the inside? You, you sort of bend it and it's just a nice soft spot. And it was a nice read by Baker hitting Beckham in stride well in front of a driving safety. And then Cream Hunt took over, which we all know. He notched three touches for 59 yards and a score uh, on this drive. One screen went for 23 yards. His 29-yard touchdown came after Beckham's near, I'll call it spectacular, target down the left sideline. And and that was a nice play because he beat uh, cover two, and it was a whole shot that Baker actually was late on. Uh, Beckham does a great job at the line of scrimmage, winning against the cornerback. Uh, The corner has no choice but to bail on him. And then it's just Beckham and a deep safety about, 15 yards off and Baker is just slow to it. And had the catch point been just three yards in front, two yards, or excuse me, behind two yards behind where the eventual catch point went, we would have had another big Beckham gain, which again, I think is really important for fans to keep in mind as we're doing this dive. It's the chances they left on the field. Like we're, we're talking about Beckham having a nice performance in general, but the opportunity left on the field, not to anyone's mistake, not to anyone's concern, just that they're close. They're close against a, a, a Bears defense that I think deserves a lot of respect aside from what the offense put out there. So we can wrap up with this, just their fourth quarter. Beckham had one more 15-yard catch uh, before I get to my takeaways and what it means for the future uh, of this Browns offense. But Beckham had one fourth-quarter catch, uh, 13-minute mark, as you said. They, they, there was no need to have him out there, so his snap count uh, – decreased through that those final 15 minutes but this was just another 15 yard comeback first out off coverage and those easy pickings are what baker and odell in their 80 percent best form are going to be which i think they were at 80 percent on sunday and then that 100 percent is the offensive line holding up uh, them hitting 
the some of those hole shots versus different coverages, and, and we're close. Like I said, 75 to 80% there. But when you watch the tape and just your takeaway from the game, you, you got to be impressed because this could have went a whole lot worse versus a defense that, again, I think uh, is probably in the upper half of defenses despite uh, the Bears likely not having a nice record this year. And that fa- that's going to factor in too, Scott, what we get in with, with the offensive line. But like in the end, yeah, that's, I mean, the Steelers and the Ravens aren't going to make it easy either. But what they were trying to work out with Baker and Odell was against, you know, was against a defense that was not giving Baker as much time as he wanted sometimes. I mean, I think, I think all things considered with the context, it was pretty good because the Bears, the Bears defense was legit on, on Sunday. Yeah. And I mean, his catch rate wasn't great in the five catches on nine targets, but it's never been great. I mean, he's been under 60% every year with the Browns, and he was barely over 60% uh, as far as catch rate goes with the Giants. So he's not – he's no Rashard Higgins. I mean, come on now. But uh, he he gets it done. I mean, he he obviously makes more big plays than, uh, than guys who have a higher higher catch rate. And I was – I'm still kind of shocked that he was out there so much. Um, he said multiple times after the game how exhausted he was, but – I, I get the feeling it was kind of up to him and it wasn't like a thing where doctors were telling them to, to necessarily not have him out there for so many reps and that it was a lot, but I think it was a good start for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Ella, so what's it tell us for the future? Yeah. Quickly, some quick points to get out of here and what it means for the future of the Browns offense and, and OBJ's games going forward, expect Beckham to own a large chunk of the Browns air yards, just like he did in, 2019 and through seven games last year in week three, he accounted for 50% of those air yards on Sunday. Again, that tells me that he's the go-to guy downfield and it's just not going to be Anthony shorts yet. We'll get to shorts in a second. Uh, Beckham remains an outside receiver that Kevin Safanti will move around to find matchups against certain looks and situations. He'll be used on deep posts, slants, vertical stops and comebacks. But the thing is when you see him in the slot, expect something coming his way not every time but it's those got to have it moments you're going to get Odell in the slot as Scott laid out earlier Uh, we touched on this already but their chemistry looked and felt better than the slightly 55 percent catch rate those numbers must and should improve I expect them to and lastly he and Anthony Short split reps about 65 35 and I I expect that to go to about 70 30 and the only reason really being is because this team clearly has big plans for Anthony Schwartz. Uh, they're going to keep giving him opportunities. He's a great natural spell or reliever for Odell Beckham Jr. anyway. And the cerebralness of Kevin Stefanski and Andrew Barry just tell you that if they can get Anthony Schwartz to groom him into a replacement for Odell Beckham Jr. by next year, they're sure as hell going to do it. And, and it looks like just based on the snap count, that's where it's headed. Yeah, that sounds right to me. I was skeptical about Schwartz this year, but like learn, 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 watch this guy, give him a break, learn, 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 work on that back shoulder stuff, whatever. It's not only about speed. He's not going to be Odell. Cause I don't know that he'll ever be, be able to come in the slot and do some of that stuff that Odell does. But if he can be the long-term deep threat for them, I also just want DPJ had a really nice back shoulder, as you said, Ellis, that like I, as a DPJ skeptic at times, I, I thought he made some, a couple nice catches. Didn't have a lot of action on Sunday, but I just want to acknowledge that when he does well. All right. I think that helped us. I think that helped. Everybody was curious about this. We, we saw it, but what did it, Really, what really happened and what does it mean? I think that was very helpful for all the uh, Odell Beckham Jr. fans and people who care about the Browns offense. We'll be back to talk more about the offense with the offensive line next on Gotta Watch the Tape. Doug Ellis, Scott, thanks for joining us here. Make sure you listen to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast five days a week right in this feed. We come in every Thursday. Scott, you're breaking down the offensive line. There is one thing. One thing, one thing that I care about the most with the offensive line, and I will note it, I will sound the alarm if and when you mention it, and if not, I'll bring it up at the end, but I'm very curious for this breakdown. So they were great last year. So are they still that great? Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape. Yeah, I got the sense that there were people struggling to comprehend just how the Browns' offensive line can let Baker Mayfield be under pressure so much on Sunday. Never mind who they were playing. It was uh, I saw a lot of texts from our Football Insider subscribers, kind of really upset about that. Um, after all, this line was proclaimed one of the best, if not the best, in the NFL last season. Someone on this very podcast might have made that kind of declaration last season. Looking at you, Ellis. 
You know uh, it. Football, you know football focus, for one, ranked the Browns offensive line first entering the season, noting how they had all five returning starters coming back. And that's really the anchor of this whole thing is they had continuity. They played so well last year. They have everybody coming back. But I think you need to take a closer look at this line, what they accomplished last season, that maybe make it easier to understand that that level of play might not be as sustainable across the board. Uh, let's start with Jack Conklin. He was an all-pro for the second time last season, which is the first time since his rookie year in 2016. PFF gave him career highs in both overall offensive grade, 84, and pass blocking grade, 81.5. He was in the ballpark offensive grade-wise with the Titans, but he hadn't been close to that pass blocking grade since his rookie year. Also, from 2019 with the Titans to 2020 with the Browns, he cut his pressures allowed in half from 33 to 15, the lowest total of his career. So that's Wyatt Teller. We talked all that season about his big D from unproven to one of the highest graded offensive linemen, not just right guard, offensive lineman in the NFL for PFF grading. 92.9. That was his offensive grade last year. And it was boosted by that ridiculous run grade of 93.6. He had never even reached 55 in run blocking grade in his first two years, but there he was leading the NFL. He struggled a bit in pass protection, but it really didn't seem to matter. He only gave up 14 pressures and three sacks. J.C. Treader. His offensive grade was a career high too, 81.0, which was second among centers last year. Seven pressures, his first time under 14 since the 2016 season. Batonio earned his third straight Pro Bowl berth last year. He had a career high run blocking grade of 81.8, which is almost 10 points higher than his previous best. And he continued to be excellent at pass protection, though. He was above 85 for the fourth straight season. And then finally, Jedrick Wills Jr., who, of course, everything he did was a career high because he was a rookie. His running blocking was below what was expected coming out of Alabama. It was just 62.6 uh, graded by PFF, but his pass protection grade was 77.6. The Bucks' Tristan Wirfs was the only rookie tackle with a higher grade, but remember Wills had to switch from right to left for the Browns, and that never really materialized as a big issue. He also he gave up fewer pressures last season than Wirfs, Makai Becton, and Andrew Thomas, who were the other three highly drafted tackles last year. So to sum up, you had four linemen playing at career high levels in one aspect or another, and a rookie who was good enough to make the 2020 all rookie team at left tackle. That's a great base for an 11 and five season and a, and a second round uh, playoff appearance. But that kind of play isn't something that's often repeated. The Ravens, for example, were first in pass blocking grade and third in run blocking grade in 2019. They finished last season in the teens in both categories. The Rams were first in run blocking in 2018. They were 26th in 2019. The Steelers might be the best recent example of a line that had good back-to-back -back years. They were first in pass blocking in 2017, second in 2018, but their run blocking was never close to what the Browns uh, has been. So that crazy high level of play last year should be, kind of be kept in context as we move through this season and try to figure out what we're watching. Can I ask a question to see if this connects the two points we've made here so far? When they have Odell Beckham on the field and they are trying to take advantage of him and hit him down the field, does it put more on the offensive line and does it give them more opportunities to not look as good because they have to protect for longer? And when Odell's not there and they're just playing, throw it to the tight ends and throw it to Jarvis, they don't have to protect for as long. Oh, I was going to say Baker's uh, like average depth of target was over nine last season and it did not change okay. when okay. Beckham left. And a lot of that has to do with play action too. How often are they using play action when they're, when they're going downfield on those long throws? Yeah. I, I think an interesting metric, which I don't have available to me would be Mayfield's time to throw with versus without Odell Beckham jr. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the target depth makes you think it doesn't change much, but it, it would be interesting to see. What happened? Do we know, Ellis, that when you pointed out that they could not hold up in pass protection when they were trying to, and Odell was open on that shot, do we know who was, who, who on the offensive line did not hold up their end of the bargain there? Yeah, it, it's left. I think it came from the left end, left, okay. left tackle issues. Okay. All right. Which is also part of it. But so, yeah. so Scott, that's, so is it a bad game? Is it, it was like, okay, well, you know, the Bears are pretty good. They got Khalil Mack. They got some other guys. Jedrick Wills is clearly not himself. I mean, they put him back in at, after he came out, and he couldn't move. He gave up. He had a holding penalty and a sack on one drive. He killed a drive by himself because he couldn't move. And then they had to put Hans back in after that. So it, how much is that 
this or is there more to it, Scott? Is there a a slight should people start to wonder a little bit going forward? Yeah, that's the other reason I wanted to get into the line this week, because I, too, wonder, like, how concerned should we be after that performance? Baker Mayfield was under pressure on 35 percent of his dropbacks and, of course, sacked five times. And then you got the whole Jedrick Wills ankle issue thing going on. The last time Baker was under so much pressure was week 14 last season against the Ravens, 38 and a half percent of his dropbacks in that game. He was also sacked five times by the Ravens. He was consistently under pressure more than 30 percent of the time in weeks two through four last season. Those are all wins for the Browns, by the way, and also in week six by the Steelers. But other than those games, that Raven game, most of the games last season, he was kind of in that 12 to 22, 23% range as far as being under pressure. They really did a good job of, of keeping things away from him. And that's kind of what we saw through the first two weeks this season. The Chiefs were at 29%, uh, but the, te- the Texans only 14%. He had two sacks against in each game. So then here comes the Bears defense, which, by the way, had the league's worst DVOA in week one after getting crushed by the Rams. Yep. And then uh, they had the second best defensive DVOA in week two when they got to play the Bengals. Uh, against the Browns, they ranked 19th. So they were, you know, they've just been kind of back and forth on two ends of the spectrum. And then I guess the Browns, they kind of fell somewhere in the middle. The Browns, by the way, were ranked first in defensive DVOA in week three. Not a big surprise at all. So the Bears, even though the that kind of fluctuation on uh, their efficiency, they recorded 21 pressures against the Browns overall. They even though Baker was under pressure 14 times, more than one player can have pressure on one play, even though the quarterback only technically feels pressure once per snap. That's how you get more pressures than actual pressures felt. But 21 pressures, which is a decent number. Despite all that, though, the Browns still ranked the Browns are still ranked fourth by PFF in pass blocking and run blocking through three games. They're the only team in the top five in each category, although the Rams are second in pass pro and six in run blocking. But uh, the Browns, like I said, the only team in the top five in, in both of those. I want to get into run blocking real quick, um, even though most of this is about pass blocking. Run blocking, the Browns are doing really good. Last season, they finished sixth in adjusted line yards, which – kind of takes running back carries and assigns credit to the running to the offensive line. Basically the longer the run, the less credit they're going to get because you know, the player, the, the runner is doing more things downfield. The Browns ranked first and second level yard, which is that five to 10 yard area. So they're doing good uh, overall. And then great in that, in that five to 10 yard area this year, the Browns are second in adjusted line yards. So they've gotten better through the first few yards. They're at five yards per carry rushing the ball. That's up from 4.7 last season. And again, they're still really good in that five to 10 yard uh, second level range. They're, they're ranked first in that. So running the ball has not been an issue. It's pass protection where the issues sometimes have shown up adjusted sack rate for the Browns, which is pressures. And they kind of roll in grounding penalties caused by pressure last season. They were middle of the pack ranked 17th this year. The Browns are ranked 30th. Uh, so how did that happen, and is it cause for concern? Well, Cochran had one of his worst pass pro games uh, in week one against the Chiefs. He could not contain uh, edge rusher Chris Jones on a couple of big moments in that game. He finished with three pressures allowed, a sack, and a pass pro grade of 58.3, which is one of the worst of his career. He's gotten better each week. He's been over 70 both times. He was 82.9 versus the Bears. His offensive grade is 88. Four right now so that's great I don't think you have an issue with Jack Conklin Batonio and Treader have both been great too Batonio is over 90 in pass protection both of those guys are over 70 in offensive grade Batonio is at like 79.5 those guys have done really well it's the other two guys that uh, have, have been a cause for concern that have not really played at the level even close to what they were last year Wills as we've said has the ankle issue he was great in week one uh, before he got hurt his pass protection grade was 84.4, but that was in 11 snaps in pass protection. He suffered an ankle injury, and he's graded in the 60s almost across the board the last two weeks. He earned a pass protection grade of 45.8 against the Bears, and he gave up four pressures, and we all saw him kind of struggling. Lake Hance came in, struggled as well, below 60 across the board. Maybe someone put up the bat signal for Chris Hubbard this week because he finally returned to practice on Wednesday. 
not that Hubbard has been outstanding at left tackle, but he's probably a better option there against Hans, than Hans, especially if uh, if Wills is not able to go. Wills has been kept out of practice this week again. So uh, left tackle, obviously an issue. Teller is a 69.2 for an offensive grade this year, far below that 92.9 from last season. It's been a different world. His best run blocking game was against the Texans when he graded at 72.6. That's the only time he's broken 70 as a run or pass blocker this season. In fact, he's been below 60 as a pass blocker every game, although he's yet to allow a sack. So I want to go ahead and put a panic meter on some of these guys and, and see where you guys might land. Uh, at left tackle, no matter who it is, I, I guess I'm putting it at medium to high panic at this point. Um, there's really no great answer right now not knowing what Wills is going to give you from game to game. And well, if, but, but that's clear. I mean, that's all injury related for Jed. Yeah. I mean, Jed is clearly oh, yeah. the long-term answer. They have to get him healthy. This doesn't feel like anything that's going to like not let him play in December. Right. Yeah. So they might have yeah. to patch it together in the meantime. So my panic would be much lower. I don't know. Like why is James Hudson not in the mix there? At the moment, Hans is not good enough. They'll figure it out with Hubbard. But my my panic meter about that, as you said, Jed was good in week one, and now he can't move. Oh, yeah. And I'm talking, like, right now. Yeah. Um, as far as what they do right now, especially going into this next game. So uh, let me, let me say this real quick. Yeah, let me say this real quick. For, for right now, I do have a pretty high panic meter. It's going to take the Browns changing – parts of their offense to bring along whoever it's going to be at left tackle, whether it is Chris Hubbard or Blake Hans, largely because you have to keep in mind who they have coming up on this schedule. And Scott, you, you may be getting into this, but it Daniel Hunter for the Vikings, uh, what Joey Bosa in Los Angeles for the chargers, and then a, a combo of Chandler Jones and JJ Watt for the Cardinals. So it, it really speaks to how fragile an offensive line can be as soon as you get one leakage spot and unfortunately for the Browns right now it's at the most important position yeah no those teams have had uh what two games of watching what Jordan Wills can and can't do uh, on the ankle um so yeah but I mean at very least I'm putting that in medium panic so then there's Teller I'm probably putting it low to medium panic if only because the Browns are still first in rushing DVOA and second in yards rushing per game um but he was a key to a lot of what this offensive line was able to do last season. And while they still run the most behind him, as far as number of carries behind right guard, uh, him not being at that level, obviously you're not going to see that performance that we saw across the board from this, from this offensive line without him being close to that level. He was the surprise of that whole line. As far as Petonio, Teller, and Conklin, I, I mean, there's no panic there at all, I don't think. I think those are the guys who you have the most confidence in uh, going forward, but um, left tackle and right guard, which, hey, we're back to what we were in uh, last season, not really knowing what we're going to get going into week one. Um, I think we're like that going into week four. Not entirely sure what kind of game we're going to get out of either of those spots. That's all I care about. Wyatt Teller's pass blocking is all I care about. He is a one-dimensional player. It's why they're not going to pay him. He is not going to be a Brown next year. You can't pay him. He's a one-dimensional player. And giving up, at blowing it in pass protection cost them on the final drive against the Chiefs last year. He was the lowest-graded pass blocker a year ago, 61.7, way below everybody else on this offensive line. 55.8 right now. The other, I mean, Jed's hurt. This is who Wyatt Teller is. He He's a great run blocker. Pull, I get it. He's really important to the run game, and they are a run-first team. But as they try to level up as an offense – they have a hole at right guard and pass protection, and it's going to hold them back. So I don't think – Jed, I think you you got to hope he gets healthier and patch it together. But this is who Wyatt Teller is. That's not going to change. If he's not clearing out two dudes every time you run the ball, then you start wondering, like, is it worth it? Because I think he is borderline a liability in pass protection. And it happened again against the Bears – and I don't know that it's going to get fixed. And I just don't think when everyone talks about all the guys I have to pay, this is why he is not high on my list because he's great at one thing 
and like legitimately kind of not good at the other, in my humble opinion. Don't yeah, tell the- him I said that. He carries alligators. Oh, <laughs> you, you beat me to it, Doug. The real loser in all this is the off-season training methods of fireman carrying alligators. I guess that does not build better pass-protecting guards. Who would have thunk it? But any trainers out there hoping to package that up, not, not a good idea. Am I overstating that, Ellis? You're not. Um, we are enough way through Wyatt Teller's career to probably understand that he's a straight line runner, uh, one that can gain speed and momentum quickly. But when it comes to pass sets and dealing with lateral quickness inside, uh, he hasn't shown it yet. He continues not to show it. And teams are clearly comfortable putting their more athletic three technique on Wyatt Teller and feeling like that's a favorable matchup. So Scott, short term, right? We got to figure out what the Browns are going to do against Minnesota. There are two of these spots that are issues right now. You think left tackle is more of a short-term issue because we don't even know what it's going to look like. And, but, I, but that maybe if, if assuming Wills gets back to full health at some point this season, then is Teller more of a long-term issue for the offensive line when we talk about getting to the playoffs? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, uh, and, you know, and, and Hubbard could rotate in with him and, and do a much better job than Hans did. And maybe it's not as big of a deal this week. But yeah, long term, long term. If Wills is healthy, then then yeah, Teller's the guy. But right now, I look at that left tackle, and I think that guy's out there on his own a lot more than why Teller would be. So yeah. All right. So when we look now at what's ahead, I, I I really really do think we'll get into this on the on the prediction show on Friday. Like, I mean, not I think a lot of people think this is a game. Like this is a this is the Minnesota has done some things well. What what are the challenges that Minnesota's going to bring to this offensive line for the Browns, Scott? And like, do you expect they are up for it? Or as Ellis was mentioning, does Minnesota have some guys in the defensive line that could be real problems? Well, the Browns are second in sacks after their nine sack outbursts. They have 12 for the season. The Vikings, though, have 10. They're tied for fourth. Although five of them came in week one against the Bengals. I don't know if we know for sure what that means yet. Uh, we're still trying to figure out what the Bengals are. But uh, Daniil Hunter... Who I believe got paid this this offseason, if I'm not mistaken. I, th- uh, I think they yeah they reworked his contract. Yeah, reworked his contract. Yeah, he leads the team in pressures with 16. He has taken most of his snaps over the right tackle, so confidence you see plenty of him on Sunday. Although he does move around a fair amount, uh, he has four sacks, two from each side of the line, but 14 of his pressures have come from the left, so over over the right tackle. So it's another big matchup for for Jack Conklin, who you know went into last week having to face uh, Khalil Mack. <clears throat> Treader and Batonio will likely have to deal with uh, defensive tackle Michael Pierce, second on the team in pressures with six. He has a PFF grade of 75.2. Uh, but beyond that, the Vikings have been kind of underwhelming on it as a defensive front. They rank 30th in ESPN's pass rush win rate metric, which measures how often a player is able to beat his block in two and a half seconds. They're also 30th in run stop win rate. If you want to go by DVOA, the Vikings are 25th overall. They're 24th against the pass, 27th against the run. Uh, don't expect a lot of blitzing from the Vikings. They do it even less than the Browns. They're a little over 20% uh, of the time so far. But it is worth noting that every quarterback the Vikings have faced this season has been under pressure on at least 30% of his dropbacks. Uh, and like you said earlier, and uh, that that was that wasn't the norm for Baker, uh, but it's been the norm for for people that face the Vikings this year. That includes Joe Burrow, Kyler Murray, Russell Wilson. The Bengals and the Seahawks don't have the best offensive lines, but the Cardinals are actually ranked first by PF and pass blocking grade. They rank seventh in adjusted sack rate. Hunter had seven pressures and three sacks against the Cardinals. So for a Browns team that has had some hiccups in pass protection, that could be cause for concern. Overall, defensively, they're not the Bears, but I look at what they did against the Cardinals, and that was a shootout, by the way, that game. And just the fact that you have a pass rusher in Daniil Hunter who's willing to move around, and maybe that takes advantage of your issues at left tackle. Um, they clearly have, have work ahead of them this week. And it's not – I don't know. I don't, I don't put – if you want to put a panic meter on this, I don't put it up where, where, where we thought it was against – but they clearly have have ways to attack the Browns up front. 
All right, last quick break, and we'll come back and finish up how this might affect the Browns on Sunday against Minnesota. Next on Gotta Watch the Tape. All right, Ellis, do you, do you think that the play of the Browns' offensive line and, and what the Vikings might be able to do defensively, how big of a deal is that for this game? Is this an area where you would zero in and say, man, Minnesota might be able to do some stuff to screw the Browns up? Yeah, I think it really is going to make or break this game. Uh, Mike Zimmer being the defensive coordinator and expert that he's always been throughout this league is going to watch and already has watched that Bears tape and is used to seeing Chicago get after his offensive line, who has lesser names and, and less of quality talent than the Browns do. And he's going to look at those pressures and know how to attack uh, a, a wounded unit right now. Uh, this is going to be much more about Kevin Stefanski's counter to what Zimmer now knows than Kevin going out there and still just trying to play his brand of football. I think there's going to be some adjustments needed, perhaps keeping tight ends in more. Cream Hunt's one of the best pass blocking running backs in football, but we're going to have to see an adjustment from Kevin Stefanski largely because Zimmer saw the pressure Baker was under this past week and, and must just be licking his chops. He's going to know how to get after Baker if Kevin doesn't make an adjustment here. All right, let's put a final actual panic meter about the offensive line on this. You have mentioned panic meter a couple times here, Scott. Let's say a one on the panic meter is basically the way the Browns offensive line played for most of last year. They're as good as anybody. They are a key to this offense working and you wholeheartedly believe in them almost every game, snap to snap, they're dudes. And a 10 is, I think the Browns are going to lose because of the offensive line. Okay. Where would you place the panic meter about the Browns offensive line for this game, Scott? And then we'll, Ellis, we'll get yours too. It's over five, five and a half. Okay. Only okay. because they've done so well running and pass protection has been sketchy at times. So it's like they they work off each other, but uh, uh, five and a half. And Hubbard coming back at left tackle would help, would help lower that level for sure compared to Hans, Right. So yeah. I mean, that's, that's helpful. All right. Ellis, where would yours be? I'm going to go as high as a seven or a half or an eight. And that being because we have to keep in mind of the Vikings offense versus the Browns defense, which I know is not what we got into today, but where I'm going with this is I worry of a scenario where the Browns are playing catch up in this game. They're down 10 points at some point, down 14. And now you're asking Hubbard, Hanson, who we already mentioned, Wyatt Teller, having to get away from their strengths. And that is going to give this Vikings defensive line an opportunity to tee off, which we saw in the Bears game. The Browns largely win that game because the Bears have no ability to generate offense. This Vikings offense is a top 10 unit. And if that results in points quicker and a trailing Brown team, which they haven't had to do much this year. Things could snowball quickly. Yeah, Scott, I've had, that, that makes this would not be an offensive line where you want to have to feel like you're, you're throwing every down and just not, and getting away from what these guys do best. Yeah. Especially if they have to pick up a lot of, a lot of yards and big chunks and not having enough time to do that. Um, I mean, throwing to your tight ends because they're open. That's only going to get you so far down the field. All right, that was Scott Patsko on the Browns offensive line. Previously, you heard Ellis Williams on Odell Beckham Jr. We appreciate you guys making Gotta Watch the Tape. Part of your Browns fandom, make sure you're reading cleveland.com slash Browns every single day. For Ellis Williams and Scott Patsko, I'm Doug Maurice. Thanks for diving in on Gotta Watch the Tape.